So you guys may know that at the end of our service, we've been praying the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. And it's a great prayer for asking God to use us in the world. So as we, as we close our service, pray, God, make me an instrument of your peace. It's one of the last things we do before we go. Um, I'm tempted to call this the prayer of St. Atticus, because it just sounds like it would be a thing. <laughs> but Atticus is my almost five-year-old son. You can't quite, you know, give him the historic sainthood. However, let's be real. The Bible calls all believers saints, the called out ones, the holy ones. So I'm going to call my son St. Atticus. He has come up with a prayer. Babe, I never got to ask you, did he actually make this up or did he get this from somewhere? Yeah, he's okay. So he totally made this prayer. It is the prayer of St. Atticus of America, of Twin Peaks, whatever. Um, (laughs) He prays this every chance he gets a chance to pray. It's almost every time he prays out loud. In fact, he's prayed it here. Some of you would say, what did he say when he comes up to the mic at the end? He's actually mumbled this prayer. He was nervous, so he mumbled it. This is how it goes. Dear Jesus, help us to die when we are ready to and to not die when we are not ready to. My almost five-year-old philosopher, (laughs) already contemplating death. But I was was always gripped by, like, that is just such a great prayer. Because, you know, someone in the family died, and I think that's when that kind of jump-started it, and this concept of death, and this kind of, like, this vague, like, it just takes people away, and this fear of it. And his, his, his way was turning to God with this rote prayer he prays all the time. And it changes depending on who's around. He'll actually say, help Mama and dad and sister and name of the dog and whoever else is there to die when they're ready to and help. And then he names them all again, the litany of names, to not die when they're not ready to. And it's really precious. Um, What it does show us, though, is that East of Eden, that's the theme of our professor in Ecclesiastes, is that life is East of Eden, meaning life is not the way it was meant to be lived. So we live outside Eden. Life East of Eden is one where death seeks us all. And like the game of hide and seek, he's counting down to your number. And then he will declare, ready or not, here I come. And we know that. We know that internally, even though we rarely want to acknowledge it verbally or articulate it in our lives. And this terrorizes us. It causes some of us to be paralyzed and live a small life where we do the safest things we can. (laughs) Boy, is that one tale of culture right now, isn't it? But then it also prods others of us to be incredibly ambitious and to try to conquer the world, in a sense to make ourselves so powerful that death can't dare come to us. Now, no one would admit that's what they're doing. But that is what drives much of human achievement, is this idea that maybe we can at least live on in people's memories. Death terrorizes us because we know, ready or not, it's coming. Last week, the professor talked about death. This week, he talks about death. Next week, he'll mention it again. (laughs) Really, Really? All this death? Why so morbid? I don't go to church to be terrorized by death. Um, But it's something that we must deal with east of Eden. And here's why. Because in the beginning, God made us to live with him immortally, forever, ruling with him, sharing his grace and power to minister and rule over the created world. That was what we were made for. But then, off camera, somewhere in Genesis 2, a rebellion of angels occurs. 
And there's now a villain who cannot take God down on his own. So what does he do instead? He hits God indirectly by hurting his creation. Humanity, his prized creation, becomes the target. And so God warns Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 verse 17 and says, Look, the tree of life, that is where you will keep on living. Because that's where you get my grace to live forever and ever. But that tree of knowledge of good and evil you must not eat from. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Was this a threat? (laughs) You better not do it or I will do something really bad to you. No. That is not what's going on here. So, of course, you guys know that because we decided to eat from the wrong tree, we essentially joined the serpent, the devil, in his rebellion against God. The serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says, basically, look, I can't get after God, but I can get after you guys. He doesn't tell them this, but this is behind his motives. And by getting them to disobey God, they side with the serpent in rebellion against God. Okay. So what God does next is he strips the serpent of his power. This angelic being, fallen, now in full rebellion against God, God judges and condemns and strips of his power, leaving him only with authority over the realm of death. On your belly you shall crawl and eat dust all the days of your life. That does not mean ancient people thought serpents ate dust. It means that the serpent was given the realm of the dead, for we are dust, and to dust we shall return, which is what he tells Adam a few verses later. Where do we go? We die and we go to the realm of the serpent. He owns death. This is his realm. This is his territory. And then God cuts us off from the tree of life as a mercy to us, lest we, in our rebellion against him, have that sealed permanently in our immortality. Because if we were immortal creatures forever, we would live with our rebellion forever. But what God does is he gives us mortality He permits the serpent to have the realm of death so that we have the opportunity to turn from our rebellion against God and repent. That's why death exists. So that we don't have to share in the fate of the rebellious demons. It's a crazy thought. That death is not necessarily only a curse, but that it exists to give us opportunity to turn our hearts to God. Because if you were immortal and ate from the tree of life as a rebel, you would be fated with the demons forever. So, in this way, God uses death to overcome the devil by giving us the opportunity to be restored. The devil tried to hurt God by taking us. All right? He got us. <laughs> but now God gets to defeat the devil by giving us an opportunity to come back. And ironically and beautifully, it is through the very power of the devil that God usurps the devil. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children, that's you and I, since we share in flesh and blood, we're mortal, we have flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise partook of the same things. He took on flesh and blood, that through death Christ might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. Here, you have the realm of death so that, God knows, Christ is going to come and he's going to subject himself to death, to the realm of the devil, enter and go to the place of the dead upon the cross so that he can empty the place of the dead and take Satan's last weapon with him. And that we are freed and no longer in the tyranny of death. Thus, he has restored humanity. And we therefore, you guys might remember this on Easter. In fact, all the weeks after Easter until Pentecost, we were, we were saying this hymn from St. John of Damascus. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs, bestowing life. He's risen from the dead, trampling down death, trampling down the devil by death, and upon those in the tombs, bestowing life. Adam and Eve, humanity, now restored. However, we have this question. Will you repent, or will you continue to participate in the fate of the demons? That's what your death asks you. Will you repent, or will you continue your participation in the fate of the demons? And the way we continue that participation is we keep on sinning. So, Christian, here's what all of this means. For us, death is no longer a terror. Death is a teacher. Death is no longer a tyrant, but death can now show us the way. That is true for the Christian, because where death is, Christ has gone before us and emptied it of its power. So, will we listen? That's what the professor wants us to do. So what is more dangerous than death, therefore? This is a twister. Your life. Your life is more dangerous than death. Because only you in your life have the power to rob what Christ has taken out of in death. You have the power to go where the demons are destined. Your life is the most dangerous thing you hold in your hands. May you give it to God. So here we go. In Ecclesiastes, this is what we've seen so far. We're in the university level of wisdom. You remember Lady Wisdom, Proverbs? We had some nice weeks in that. Some great truths, some great foundations of wisdom laid down for us. But then she said, bon voyage. It's time to grow up and go to Professor Vanity's course. Everything is vanity. And there we learn from him that everything is vanity because we now live east of Eden. Vanity is the Hebrew word Havel, which is also the name Abel. And Abel was one of the first humans east of Eden. And we see that his life is the definition of vanity. It was short and it was uncertain. He was righteous, yet he was killed by the unrighteous. And he died too young. The good die young, they say. All too often east of Eden, that's true. So here's what he does in his series of lectures to us. Part one, we've seen that he tells us that life is brief. The brevity of life is a problem. And then in part two, which is now what we're in the midst of, the uncertainty life, the uncertainty of life is a problem. The brevity of life drives us to accomplish great things 
That's what he told us in chapter 2. I sought many things. I sought pleasure and I sought projects and I sought all these activities to try to beat the brevity of life. And then chapter 3 and 4, he turns to time because time is ticking and it gives us anxiety like, I haven't done enough yet. Life is short and the clock is ticking. And then in chapters 5 to 6 verse 9, he tells us that we then seek prosperity in wealth and reputation so that we can somehow beat the brevity of life. But all of it is vanity. Chasing after, or another way of translating it is a drinking of the wind, not filling at all. And then, chapter 6, verse 10, we go to part 2, the uncertainty of life. And last week he taught us that death will direct us through the distractions and delusions of life. And now here we are in chapter 9, and he's going to flip the script a little bit. Because when we hear the uncertainty of life, you know what I think of, and I'm, I'm sure you think of too? What makes life uncertain is death. Like, death is the uncertainty of life, okay? I know that gravity is going to happen. I know that I can eat an apple and always enjoy it. And that almond butter goes especially well on a pink lady apple. Like, I know all these things. But death is so uncertain. I don't know when it's coming. I don't know what's there, what it looks like on the other side. It's terrifying. It's misty. It's out there. We often think that the uncertainty of life is death itself. But here's what the professor is going to say tonight. Nope. The one certainty in life is that you die. The uncertainty of life is everything else. That's what he's going to say. So David Gibson said this in his commentary. We tend to live as if the one thing that is certain will never come. While the many things that are uncertain are certain. That's how we live. Death is the thing that's uncertain, and my life is certain. But the professors can say, nope, you need to rethink this. Your death is guaranteed. Everything else in your life, not at all. Not at all. So let's go and see this uh, rather morbid section and find the encouragement he gives us. So death is certain, chapter 9, verse 1. This goes all the way through verse 10. Death is certain. 9-1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. What is he saying? Very poetically, he's saying, everyone dies. Guaranteed. It does not matter how religious you are, how rich you are, what political party you subscribe to. None of this matters. Everyone goes to death. Verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. His phrase for east of Eden. That the same event happens to all, even the young, even the old. I added that part. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing And they have no more reward, 
for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. To know that we will die does not mean that we will know how to live. He says death is guaranteed. To know that is not the same thing as knowing how to live, though. Not all of us will know how to live well. And that's what he's going to do in verse 7. Teach us how to live well. This is going to sound very familiar, because this is the fifth time he's going to play this song for us. Verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Or in other words, God's already approved that you enjoy the gifts he gives you. So go and enjoy them. As I've said now for the fifth time. Let, verse 8, he's adding now some details for us. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. So, hey, take some care about your life. White garments were easy to soil in olden days. You couldn't just put Tide on it and throw it in the washing machine. It was very expensive and very time-consuming to wash white garments. So you usually only wore white for festive events, like a marriage or a festival. So, look, clothe yourselves in white. Enjoy life. Let not oil be lacking on your head. That was um, just basically a way of soaping, deodorizing, and cleaning yourself. Oil was the way they did that. Verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Why? Because if you don't enjoy life with your spouse, it means that you're living for yourself. It means that you're using your marriage for your own pleasure, and you're using each other as a means to get to your vain accomplishments. So stop all that. Stop seeing each other as in the way and just enjoy each other. You made vows. Enjoy them. Live together. Share life together. Because the good life is a shared life, not a cowboy life. That's my word for the solo hero. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that, you ha- that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shul to which you are going. Remember, shul is the Hebrew word for the place of the dead. In the New Testament, it's Hades. It's the same. It's the realm is where dead people go. And remember, the serpent was given rule over shul and Hades. But that's also what Christ conquered on Easter. Verse 11. So now we get to this moment. Um... Oh, the only thing worse, we don't always know how to live well, because the only thing worse than death is, in summary, what he's saying to us. The only thing worse than death is not living well. It's living a poor life. Yep, dying is tragic, but to have never lived before you die is even more tragic. So he's giving us advice there. Enjoy life. Because our salvation in Christ is so much more than just avoiding hell. Do you realize that? You were not saved just to get out of hell. But unfortunately, many of us think that that's our salvation. We wonder what this life is for. And we kind of just wait around passively, forgetting that life is something that God's given to us as a gift, and say, well, heaven will come one day, or the rapture will come one day, and I'm just going to sit here. And I've literally heard, not only in attitude, but in actual words, people say things like, I am not going to work on this or fix that because Jesus is coming soon. And the professor would rip out his beard and say, you didn't listen to a thing I said, you fool. 
Remember, your life is the most dangerous thing you own. It's a loaded gun. Be careful. Because look, in Christ, he's given us his life to prepare us for eternity. That's why when I get saved and baptized, I don't just go straight up into the heavens. See y'all? We're still here because he's given us this life as a gift to enjoy and to grow deeper into who he is so that he can prepare us for what's to come forever and ever. I for sure would hate to spend eternity as the person I was 10 years ago. And so would Brittany. She would not want to live with that person forever and ever. And I hope I'm getting more along the lines of someone for eternity. Um, This is not saying that Jesus is waiting for us to work for our salvation. But it's the reality, it's the concept that eternity is forever. And the soul is imperishable. And what I'm doing in my life now is shaping who my soul is and what it will be forever and ever. Think of it like a trajectory. What, what path are we on when we die? Because that's the one that sustains us. For, that's the one we keep going on. Further up and further in, the famous Narnian phrase. We're going further up and further in. That's why living is dangerous. For it will either follow the demons or Christ. I don't worship demons. But do you do everything Christ asks you to? Because every time we don't do what Christ tells us to do, when he tells us to follow him, we're siding with the rebellion. This is why we're alive, and this is why life can be dangerous. All right, so death is certain, and we need to take that to heart. But life is uncertain. This is 9-11 to the end, um, 11 verse 6. So 9-11, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with, uh, to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. <laughs> like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Death doesn't announce it itself. Hey, Brandon, you've got 15 days. Get your act together. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun. Excuse me. Let me pause there. So, okay. So life, life is what's uncertain. And he's going to give us three examples. He just gave you the first example. Strategy cannot protect us from the uncertainty of life. Because like the first line said, the race does not always go to the swift. You can think I've got my ducks in order and I've got this planned, but sometimes the underdog wins. And that's simply the fact. You cannot strategize your life to protect yourself from its uncertainty. It simply is. Death is certain. Your strategies are not. Second, we try to use wisdom to protect us from the uncertainty of life. Now, wisdom's good, but wisdom will not save you from the uncertainty of life. Why? Because there are for every wise person, there is, I'm being very conservative, a hundred fools. Maybe a thousand, right? So listen to what he says. So 9 verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say to you, wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and, the, and his words are not heard. So look, Solomon, our professor, is saying, look, wisdom is better than strength, 
But the truth is, people always overlook the wise person and look at the strong people. They'll forget your wisdom. It's not always heeded. Verse 17, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. One bad egg ruins the omelet, right? It's one of our Proverbs. Here, look at chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when a fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. He says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. So look, wisdom can't protect us because folly abounds and the dead flies ruin the ointment. Third way we try to protect ourselves against the uncertainty of life is through kings. The king cannot protect us. Now, by the way, when I say king, I mean politicians, political parties, nations, democracies, uh, communisms, like whatever it is that's out there. These things aren't going to protect us from the uncertainties of life. But that's usually how we vote. We vote because we're certain they will do this or this will happen. But it's not. So chapter 10, verse 5. If there is an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler... Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. So rulers are promoting the wrong people. They're promoting fools and casting down the wise. Now, rulers um, are fools. You know, they're humans. But also, a king, a government, cannot protect you against the risks and dangers of life. So he goes through these common events and says, it makes you think, can a king actually save you from these? So verse 8, he who digs a pit will fall into it. It doesn't matter who's the king, you're still going to fall into the pit. And a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. It doesn't matter who's king. Life is still full of risks. Verse 12, it kind of now goes to our words. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but by the lips of a fool, uh, the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the ends of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words. So you know a fool when they have a lot of opinions. Though no one, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. When we look at kings, we're so obsessed with opinion. I mean, honestly, the majority of what we call news is opinion. We don't actually want news. We want someone to tell us what to think about it, or how to feel about it, or how to react about it. The news is like 30 minutes a day, and the rest of the 24-hour cable networks is all opinion. And yet we ingest so much of it. This is folly. This is foolishness. You cannot look to the king for protection. It's not going to save anything. Verse 15, the toil of a fool wearies him, and he does not know the way to the city. Verse 16, woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. But happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks 
So that's under the foolish kings who feast all the time. The house is leaking. But 19, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. <laughs> There's some truth to that. Um, that one relates to happy old land when your kings are wise. Because look, everything's in its proper place. Verse 20, he closes the section on kings can't protect us. In your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will, ca- will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. <laughs> Careful what you say about your leaders. You never know. A little bird told me. You heard that saying? That's where it comes from. So we must, in other words, this is the short of what Solomon has told us, we must navigate life's uncertainty with life's, I'm sorry, with death's certainty. Navigate the uncertainty of life with the certainty of death. So let everything you do be through the filter of, I will die guaranteed. I want to now, because I'm going to die, learn how to live well, because there's something more dangerous than death, and it is this one wild life I get to live, to quote Mary Oliver, the poet. So, here's his advice to us. Live joyfully and courageously. If it's certain that we will die, and it's uncertain what life will bring to us, then live joyfully and live courageously. (laughs) Because death is not the worst thing that can happen to us. Failing to live a life that prepares us for eternity is the worst thing that can happen to us. So therefore, we are urged by our professor to live joyfully and courageously. So, the joyful life we are to live because life is a gift. So we're going to visit two sections of what we've read um, and get our advice from there. So joyfully, courageously. So chapter 9, verse 7. We're going to go back to that. Chapter 9, verse 7. Live joyfully because life is a gift. You can live more joyfully when life is received as a gift rather than when it is achieved as reward. When it's achieved as reward, I tend to want to hold on to it and grip it. And when it's lived as something I receive from God, something apart from myself, I can enjoy it so much more. So like I said, this is the fifth time he's told us this, right? So eat and drink, verse 7. Wear white and oil your head, verse 8. Enjoy your spouse, verse 9. But here's what we see as Christians. Enjoying life as a gift from God is actually enjoying life in Christ. Because here's what the early church fathers pointed out, and I would have totally missed this. They love to spiritualize a lot of texts. I don't know if you've ever read the early church fathers, but they had a lot of wisdom in that at times. They always saw Christ everywhere. And this is what they said about this. Think about this. Go and eat your bread and drink your wine with a merry heart. This is communion. This is Christ. So as we enjoy life, we are actually fully mo- and most fully enjoying it in Christ. As we enjoy the things he gives us, we are enjoying Christ who gave it to us. But as we spurn it and say, I got to keep working, I got to keep on managing the world and my time, and you are spurning what Christ is giving to you. And we're missing him in the here and now because we're so wrapped up with trying to make life certain. Uh, let your garments always be white. That's the wedding garments that we receive in our righteousness and purity as he washes us clean, the white garments. 
and enjoy your wife because we are going to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is a call to enjoy life as people who receive life in Christ. Christ is in the center of this. But also, let's enjoy life as a gift from God because this is how we restore our Edenic rule over the creation. This is how we train ourselves for, this is how we live well, for eternity, is by learning how to rule over the parts of life that he's given to us. So there's a difference between ruling creation and serving creation. And this is an important distinction. Um, we, when we see the gifts of life as something to achieve, that we got to work and work and work before we can enjoy what God's given us, when we see it as something to achieve, what we end up doing is we end up squeezing the gifts and distorting them. And when we do that, the bread and wine the professor says to enjoy the food, he tells us to enjoy, becomes gluttony and drunkenness. You're no longer ruling the good things that he's given us and enjoying them. You're letting them serve you, and you're being twisted and distorted by them, and you are participating with the demons. When we are not ruling creation, then the white clothes and the oiled head, all that becomes is vanity. It becomes this self-promotion and this greed. I need more stuff, and I need to look better, and I need people to praise me. And when we're not enjoying as gift the marriage or the other relationships God gives to us, then what happens is we're beginning to use our relationships for lust and envy. We either envy other people or we want to use other people. So this is the difference. He's telling us to enjoy the gifts God gives us because when we receive them, God is giving us training for learning how to rule the little realms he gives us. Will you be good with the gifts I give you? Will you use them well? Or will you think, oh, I've earned this and I get to do what I want and you hold it too tightly. But guess what? Then it's going to start to master you and you will begin to serve the gifts. The creation itself will be worshipped by you and adored by you and you'll become its slave. And that is where you don't want to be. And that's where we see two sides of the enjoy life crowd. One side says, enjoy life, so get drunk and just binge and spend all your money and just, you know, there's that scene. But then there's a scene of, no, this is God's gift to us, so enjoy it that we may give him thanks and may learn how to show how to use and rule over the good creation he's given us. And the people who do this are training their lives, they're living well so that they can live in eternity well. That's the idea. The person who wants to be mastered by alcohol, who wants to be mastered by their gut, who wants to be mastered by their sexual drive, who wants to be mastered by possessions, what people say about them, those people will go to hell because that's where those things exist. The racist will never sit at Christ's table because every tongue, language, tribe, and nation is at Christ's table. This is why the things God gives us here are so important that we learn how to use them well and rule over them rather than be be mastered by them because it is teaching our soul what to desire in the world to come. That's why the thing that's more dangerous than death is this life you're living. He's calling us to sober up. Death is coming for you. Sober up and live well. So enjoy. Enjoy the good gifts God has given you. Second, live courageously because Christ is risen. (laughs) 
Live courageously because Christ is risen. We often don't live joyfully because we don't live courageously. And here's what I mean. There's so many good gifts in our life that God has given us, but because we're afraid of death or we're afraid of the future, we can't stop to smell the roses because we're afraid that I will get hit by a bus while I'm distracted. Or there's a saying we have in our culture, we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. So you're enjoying, I've heard someone use this illustration, you're, in, you're, 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 you're admiring and enjoying your precious child. But you're careful not to be too overjoyed by this because what if something bad happens to them? And if something bad happens to them, it's going to hurt worse because I enjoyed them so much. So what we try to do is we, we keep joy at a distance so that when pain comes, it doesn't hurt us as much. We're cowards. And Solomon is calling us to live courageously because that's often why we're not living joyfully. Yep, to enjoy life is also to feel the pains of life. But that is so much better than being a zombie that feels nothing. So now he's going to call us to live courageously because Christ is risen. We didn't read these verses. They're at the end. It's chapter 11, verse 1 through 6. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He's saying what will happen will happen. Verse 4, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So if you obsess too much about the conditions and doing something, like the time's got to be right before I start this, you'll never start it. Verse 5, as you do not know the way of the Spirit, I'm sorry, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a child, of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and in your, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you know not which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So three times he says, you know not. Again, life is uncertain. So what is he calling us to do? Trees fall where they fall. You have no say in it. You can't obsess over, is this the right time to sow or not? Because you never will. Sow when it's time to sow. Um, so what do you do? Verse 1, you cast your bread upon the waters. What does that mean? For you will find it after many days. It means invest. It means invest. Give out and it will come back. Now, there's debate among commentators whether this is meant to say literally business investments will give you more money or if it's to say, and this is the traditional interpretation dating all the way back to the earliest Christian writings, that this is about giving to the poor. And I like that because it works both ways. That's the ultimate investment is investing our lives and our resources for the kingdom of God. But this takes courage. It takes courage to invest And the only way to do this, to put our lives on the line and to put our stuff on the line, is if we believe Christ has conquered death. And that everything we surrender is not for nothing. Actually, the early church fathers had a really interesting interpretation on verse 2. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. Here's what they say. Ambrose of Milan, 4th century. He said the seventh day symbolizes the mystery of the law and the eighth day, that of the resurrection. Why? Because the seventh day was the Sabbath. But the eighth day was Sunday, the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Didymus the Blind, also fourth century. 
said, the one who gives a part to the seven commits to the Old Testament, which was before the arrival of the Savior. The number seven indicates the institution of the Sabbath. The one who gives a part to the eighth is the one who believes in the resurrection of the Savior since he came after the Sabbath. Isn't that great? So he's not just saying, at least according to the church fathers, the way they're reading this, he's not just saying, be good and throw money around. He's saying, invest yourself into everyone and everything around you because Christ is raised from the dead, and that's why you get a return on your investment. It's because the life we live well now will resurrect for eternity well. Don't blow your opportunity. So... (laughs) We have courage because of Christ's resurrection. And this is how Paul put it. Paul, you remember when he was in prison and awaiting sentence from Caesar in, in Philippians chapter 1, he's writing as he's like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to die and be with Jesus or live and help you. I don't know. But you don't sense panic in Paul. He's completely courageous in this face of uncertainty. And this is what he says, Philippians 1.20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why does he have courage? Because I know that if I keep living, I'm going to be living for Christ. I'm living well. And if I die, I have courage because Christ has been risen. Did I say that right? He is raised. Whatever. Christ is risen. I have courage. So, brothers and sisters, if we, like Paul, receive life as a gift, we have nothing to fear. Because if there is nothing to own, there is nothing to lose. And if there is nothing to lose, there is nothing to fear. But the woe to the one who says, everything I want in life is what I'm going to achieve. You will hold on to everything so tightly. You will be a coward and you will never have joy because you will spend your whole life fighting to protect and keep what you think you've earned. There will be way too much to own, therefore way too much to hoard and lose, and therefore way too much to fear. Our professor is calling us through the uncertainty of life by saying, look at death, it is certain. And let it teach you to live joyfully and courageously because Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. We can press in to eternity by living well now or we can continue our participation in the works of darkness. But the choice is ours and that's a dangerous choice, which is why the only thing more dangerous than death is the life we hold today. So let us, brothers and sisters, commit our lives to Christ And let him hold us and let his grace govern us because we know who we are without his power. To God be glory and honor and praise now and ever and unto ages of ages.